technology, social activism, citizen journalism, Megaphone News, with managing editor and co-founder Jean Asir, nephew of Samir Asir, for this episode of the Beirut Banyan. In 2015, uh, us as organized groups, civil society, youth groups, leftist groups, feminist groups, were much more uh, visible and had a much more prominent role in also steering in a certain way uh, the demonstrations on the ground. Mm -hmm. Today, we're, I'm not going to say we're irrelevant, but we're close to that in the sense that nobody's waiting for anybody to give them any sort of direction. People are re simply spontaneously uh, go organizing and mobilizing and taking initiatives. The number of initiatives are much more, you know, too much. We can't keep up uh, on this, on that pace. And that in itself makes it feel like something completely different than anything we've experienced. And then, uh, when you say initiative, do you mean more like just individuals taking matters into their own hands? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it can be all sorts of things. It can be calling for a demonstration. It could be uh, what we've seen with the uh, people banging on their... Uh, Oh, on their pots and pans. Yeah. yeah, or also stuff that have to do with recycling or with the relief and, and, and helping processors on the ground. And in a sense, I mean, I was 12 in 2005, but there's something that, that reminds me of this vibe back then, like seeing that an entire population is kind of in sync yeah. and, and, and yeah, and, and calling for the same thing. And, and so in a way, it's, it's both. It's the accountability of 2015. Of course. And it's the unison of mm -hmm. March 14, 2005. Mm -hmm. But for you, since you're now part of this movement on an on a, on a individual scale and on a group scale, for you, what, what is different about this time around? What is, in other words, your relationship to the, mm -hmm. to the demonstrations, what is, how does your role, how has your role changed? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to to my interaction with people who used to disagree with me politically since I started becoming politically active in 2011 with the EB Secular Club. Mm. Back then, like the mere fact of being part of the Secular Club was a source of mockery and uh, like this is not political, right? Yeah. This is outside the sphere of political. This is very cute, rights-based uh, kind of approach to, to, to things and it will not lead anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it just took us, what, eight years? To get to the point where our narrative is the mainstream narrative, when you the narrative meaning a secular calls for a secular, not necessarily state, like no. just acknowledging that the entire system mm -hmm. is a system that's based on blackmailing mm -hmm. and uh, what, what what it shows as basically what it claims to be a really profound source of division among society is actually simply a tool to maintain itself and reinvent itself and what brings people together. Uh, their citizenship basically mm -hmm. is much stronger than, than all the fault lines and all the, the division lines that, uh, that can exist. And that it's actually possible to do politics outside the monopoly of the sectarian parties. Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of, r roughly speaking, being our narrative is today the mainstream narrative. Today I think, yeah. So that's like a ci citizen responsibility in that sense? That there's a there's a, an individual assertion that was not there before? Yeah, but also coming to the conclusion that the system uh, needs to profoundly change, that uh -huh. uh, yeah. like, there is no more room for reform yeah. and to accommodate ourselves with, with these people. And also the fact that the lesser evil theory uh, has completely uh, collapsed. Like It's no longer something that people can, can really defend and, uh, so and stick me, to. I'm on, I mean, and I know that you're, you're in a way engaged yourself on the streets. You're also part of something called Megaphone. Yeah. 
I mean, that has become one of the most visible tools for the younger generation, at least, how they interact with media and how they interact with news. Do you sense that because technology has shifted so much, mm -hmm. and you mentioned the secular society, secular, yeah, secular club, club, secular yeah. club. So that's the last eight years. We've yeah. seen all the tools necessary. They weren't around before. Mm -hmm. Do you sense that technology is playing a central role in this revolt and in, in this moment? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's undeniable. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the the mere fact that that before uh, traditional media had monopoly over discourse and over narratives, and yeah. that today we're much more uh, in control of what's being said and how things are being portrayed is a game changer uh, on its own. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, when when we started Megaphone in 2017, we were a group of. Uh, of activists, uh, designers, and people from different backgrounds. Uh, and the idea was pretty much that there, was, there were two main gaps. The first gap had to do with the offering of uh, news that are designed for social media. Yeah. And for us, this was one of the main causes why uh, our generation was moving away from uh, local politics and was not really engaging with local politics and feeling alienated by the way local politics being treated in traditional media. But surprisingly, they were very much interested in following global debates uh, yeah. and yeah. following international politics. And for us, It's not that local politics was uninteresting or uh, th didn't relate to them, because obviously they were living the problem and they, they were like, everything in their daily life was political. It yeah. was much more about how uh, the media wasn't really adapting to, to the new roots of the game of social media. So that was one of the main uh, goals of megaphones. So can I ask the media not adapting, meaning that they weren't they weren't literally going to the streets the way you guys do? Is that no, no, no. What I meant was uh, the formats of traditional media mm -hmm. in Lebanon are obsolete. Okay. So the way uh, either newspapers or TVs have adapted to social media is just rehashing the same formats and throwing them on their social media platform right. rather right. than adapting to the new ways of, of basically creating media and uh, creating media material. Yeah. The other mission of Megaphone has to do also with the editorial line because mm -hmm. yeah. our editorial line is beyond Kilonyani Kilon. It's, of course, <laughs> a very critical uh, look at the entire establishment, but it's also a very kind of proactive way of, of pushing uh, specific uh, themes and also featuring marginalized groups uh, like refugees, like the LGBT community, like right. women and others, uh, as part of uh, our media coverage. So you were touching on, in a way, a blend of politics and social issues and making them resonate, mm -hmm. which is what the traditional outlets here, they, they try to, but they don't succeed. Of course, and, and, and they don't have the same level of freedom that we do because right. they're also tied to financial and, and political interests, yes. which really tie their hands when, when it comes to talking about social issues or, yeah. So from the onset, mm -hmm. when, you, when you help create Megaphone, when you actively now are participating, did you know that that was what you wanted, that you wanted to distance yourself from any traditional grouping, that you wanted this to be a completely independent journey or did that kind of just evolve on its own when you realized there's no other way to do it this is the only way we can do it I mean we definitely were dreaming of these opportunities and to play the role that you're playing today uh, to be honest we didn't see it coming uh, so yeah. fast we yeah. didn't expect it that within the realm of two three years since the creation of Megaphone we would be in this position uh, uh -huh. kind of covering on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's important to remember that this is a volunteers-led project with very, very minimal funding from grants. Oh, really? So it's really completely, almost voluntary? Yeah. It started off wow. as, as fully volunteer-based, wow. uh, and then we got a few grants to be able to to have uh, two people as, as part-timers. And okay. now we're trying to institutionalize it so that it becomes uh, our day-to-day -day job. So most of the team is working after hours. They have yeah. a day job, and then 
they produce videos uh, in the afternoon and till late at night. I think it's the most accomplished part-time journey possible <laughs> because I know now from having spoken to you a bit that all of you have other jobs that yeah. are in a way they're full-time yeah. and this is a an add-on. Yeah. So I, I really am I, I a lot of respect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this podcast takes about 15 hours a day for me. I can't imagine what you guys are going through. But I, I'm curious about the, the momentum and technology, especially when it comes to just interacting with yeah. our phones. I had a conversation with Nayla Twaini mm -hmm. about her newspaper, Nahar, yeah. and how it's coping. I had a conversation with uh, the managing partner of Urbanista where we're sitting, and just his bird's eye view of the way people are interacting. And it seems like even the traditional outlets, they have no other tool other than social media, that even they cannot operate outside of social media. Mm -hmm. Do you credit social media with pretty much the last decade of Middle East havoc and, and euphoria? Is social media center to the story or is it really that we're rom romanticizing it a bit? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a binary. It's neither mm -hmm. this nor that. It's just a tool that was effectively used. Mm -hmm. But it's also a tool that can be easily co-opted. I mean, uh, it's right. also one of the main drivers of, of, of fake news. Yeah. Uh, but definitely it's something that it's extremely empowering. I mean, for people like us with uh, almost close to zero budget, we managed to create this platform and got some traction, and then right. we managed to get some funding uh, to, to, to be able to sustain it. So yeah. it's definitely something that made things much easier uh, and that is breaking the monopoly of, of, of who owns the narrative and who is allowed to, to frame right. uh, events. Right. Definitely. But to say that this is the main driver uh, that can explain the Arab uprising and the Arab revolution, I'm a bit skeptical. I'm a bit more uh, classical it, when it comes to it's my almost, analysis. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost silly to a point when people, not necessarily Lebanese press, but a bulk of international press, yeah. called this the WhatsApp revolt. As if WhatsApp is the driving force behind both the protests and what happened, what resulted in the protests. And that's, that's too much. That's just yeah, too, no, no. that's sugarcoating the whole story. But within there, within that framework, it, it does play a role that WhatsApp is critical to our lives. It is. And, if, and I, maybe you can tell me, I'm assuming WhatsApp is probably the most important app used the last three weeks when it comes to organizing. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a problem due to security issues, but it's still the main tool to basically communicate among activists, but also right. to share news and yeah, to broadcast. Uh, Do you know what WhatsApp, I mean, are they, is it that their encryption is just penetrated regularly? Or when you I'm security? not an expert on that. Uh -huh. I know it's there's an end-to-end -end, uh, encryption, yeah. but I know there's something about uh, those rules and those terms being uh, mm. that that couldn't be changed at any time. Right. Uh, but yeah, when you say security, you mean that you're not sure whether or not. I, I just trust my my colleagues who are <laughs> who are on top of it and who told us that Signal is is uh, is, is better... much more secure. So we all switched to Signal. And oh, really? It's quite funny to see like all the list of activists uh, ex uh, joined Signal within yeah. the past uh, three weeks. So Signal is taking off because of the revolution. It's yeah. used I mean, it's been a while in the past two, three years that people yeah. are moving to alternative uh, platforms yes. because of security concerns with WhatsApp. Right. But now Signal is, is booming. Yeah. Okay. Now, since you're 26, yeah. I got that right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, in a way, you're kind of a unique... I think that's the age that bridges the youth momentum on the street and maybe the slightly less energetic <laughs> late 20s sort of uh, reaching adulthood and really looking at security and economic concerns in a different way. 
do you think this revolution, the muscle or the spirit, the passion, is youth-driven, or, or do you think it's really national and that everyone is on board? And what I'm getting at is, from my own superficial judgment, it at times looks like the average age could be 18. I mean, definitely, the youth factor is, is in my opinion, the main driver. Mm. I wouldn't say, I mean, I'm a bit uncomfortable with the generational kind of conversation, although it's undeniable that a big chunk of the older generation is much more attached to uh, uh, kind of the, the status quo and to stability and yes. to these themes. And they're much more free from, from, from these burdens, in a sense. Yeah. So it's much harder to blackmail the young generation and to tell them that, yeah, if you continue this way, there's a risk of civil war or there's a risk of economic collapse. This is not something that can work with, with our generation. We've liberated ourselves from these blackmailing tools right. that have been basically defining our lives since the 90s. I mean, since yeah. the 90s, every time we have any kind of immense Participatory uh, kind of uh, demands. We're always confronted with uh, with these red lines. It's not the right time, and uh, there are priorities. Yeah. And yeah. If, if generation is not a, if, if generation is not the right way to look at it, is it that the older, the, the older age groups that we see on the streets, mm-hmm. are they still, in your opinion, comfortable with the power sharing structure Lebanon has had for most of its history? I mean, actually, for all of its yeah. independent history, but a lot of its Ottoman and French history, yeah. is it that there's an unwillingness to let go of a model that Lebanon has just been stuck with for so long? I think. And, it, I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. The younger generation, is it also a, a benefit that they don't know the they don't know the failure necessarily? So they they were not maybe they're too young to have remembered previous attempts, whether it's March 14. Maybe they were too young to really remember the You Stink movement either. Yeah. Because if you're 18 now on the street, not only do you not remember the Civil War, you don't remember previous attempts. So maybe cynicism mm. is not there. Yeah. I mean, concerning the older generation, yeah. I would say that in 2015, definitely my generation of my parents and my grandmother were much more kind of cautious. They were excited about what we were doing as of 2015 and then 2016, Beirut, Madinati, and then yeah. later yeah. on. But they weren't fully on board. Today, the conversation I had with my grandmother were extremely emotional. She was like, you're actually right. <laughs> and Ooh, that's we were, interesting. She, yeah. yeah. She's 86. Yes. And we always used to fight about me being completely, I mean, not caring about this red line and, yeah. and this consideration of security and demography and so on. Mm-hmm. And she was much more attached to, to them for like uh, a reason that can be understood. Yeah. And today, the conversation we're having, I mean, she's, she's even more radical than me in the sense. Like, uh-huh. She's saying, like, I mean, the bottom line of what my parents and my grandmother are saying is that this is something that we were dreaming of. We never have the guts to, to go that far. We were also uh, being blackmailed by the experience that we live by, yeah. by the, 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 the risk of the civil war, the risk of an economic collapse, because this is so vivid in our memory that any time we were hoping for something more ambitious than mere uh, reforms, there was something that hold, was holding us back. Uh, so today, I I'm, I'm don't want to be too optimistic, but I yeah. think that this generation is also starting to shift, the older generation. And when it comes to the newer generation, it's mm. not that they're cynical or they're uh, oblivious or they're not aware of their history. Mm. Uh, it's just that, I mean, 
this was this has been the main framework that has prevented them from being political uh, since they were born. I mean, yeah. any time yeah. we were trying to express or articulate political demands that have to do with our rights, that have to do with uh, yeah, yeah, and it's ranging from women's rights to freedom of expression to other issues, we were always confronted with this narrative that this is not the right time and uh, and this is not something that can be possible and there is like specific rules of the game in Lebanon that you need to respect. You know, it's it's for me it's so unusual where the older generation is encouraging the younger generation to protest. Mm -hmm. Usually, there's a lot of skepticism. Don't risk your life, don't do something stupid. Mm -hmm. Politics is not for us. Yeah. It's dirty, it's crooked. This time around, it almost seemed, I mean, and your grandmother's a perfect example. She's embracing and encouraging yeah. and wanting. So I want to ask you just the trajectory of what's happening now. It's now the fourth week of the protests. Yeah. And the Prime Minister resigned three weeks ago, mm -hmm. or maybe even a little more. Yeah. From a, not, I mean, I don't want to be too hard on anyone here, whether it's the protesters or the people wanting change, but do you think that because it's taking time, that this may just naturally die down? And I ask you, not in terms of whether or not people want it to die down, but the simple fact is that the Lebanese economy is frozen. Yeah. People are not protesting nearly as much as they were two weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, do you think this may actually just naturally fizzle out so long as the upper echelons don't move? They don't, because we're, we're waiting. And, I mean, it's, it's yeah. very hard to speculate, but mm. my, my conviction is that it's, this energy uh, will not disappear anytime soon. There is something that can't be undone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically, irrespective of the other factor that could, that could be on the table, like an economic collapse or other stuff, we've seen that people have the capacity to reinvent themselves and reinvent the way they protest. So it's true that in the past few weeks, maybe demonstrations were less, uh, like, like less numerous uh, than, than, than the, the weeks before, but we've seen other forms of protest. I mean, yeah. yeah. We've seen other protests that are extremely also uh, creative and mm -hmm. that are also very powerful that happened. Uh, and then the switch from blocking roads to uh, basically protesting in front of state institutions and in yes. front of banks. And this is something that shows that people have the ability to adapt. Yeah. And at the right time, I'm pretty sure that the same number of people will demonstrate in the street. And it's totally fine for this oh, to you, be... You see that there is a chance for it to up the... the yeah, of course. Yeah, the numbers to come back. I mean, we've seen it anyway. We've seen that uh, there was a week where demonstrations were a bit more quiet. Uh -huh. And then on a Sunday, yeah. after the demonstration uh, of our own supporters in Babda, yeah. we've seen a huge number of people demonstrating in Martyr Squares on, on, yes. on Sunday. So it fluctuates and it's totally normal. And, and like, let's also remember that... We're talking about unorganized groups. We're not talking yeah. about political parties who have their techniques to sustain momentum on the ground and to also uh, make sure that their people are not uh, very tired and are not drained. Yes. It's just citizens that have been on the streets for four weeks without any kind of structured uh, support. So it's totally normal for this to fluctuate. Yeah. But I'm not afraid that uh, it, will, uh, it will disappear anytime soon. And of course, the risk of the economic collapse is, is a big risk. And basically, next week, we're going to see how, how things will unfold. Because the banks have only opened, I think, for one full day yeah, since yeah. the uprising began. So there is, I mean, that, I mean, couldn't that scare away enough people to just kind of want it to come back to a comfort zone that they're used to? I mean, I don't I mean, I'm, not to sound to, I'm not trying to discredit the momentum, but just talking about just natural 
you know, time does play a role, I think. And it's important to remember that a huge number of people have literally nothing to lose. Right. I'm not one of them. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm from the middle class. I, yeah. I have some privileges. Yeah. But there are a huge number of people that have nothing to lose. And, mm -hmm. and this is something that, in my opinion, is also a guarantee that these people will fight till the end. Uh, and all of us will fight it. And I'm not. I'm not trying to to kind of distinguish between different sure. protesters. But there's something that is so profound that was uh, that was broken in a sense, and that uh, yeah. That so in a way, because the country is so broke, mm -hmm. it allows for more time to maneuver. That people don't have enough. People literally have nothing to lose. Yeah. Therefore, they're going to put all their energy into something like this. Yeah. You know, it's it's an odd situation where Lebanon is so broke mm -hmm. that that's the passion goes not to, I mean, in a way, it's not to the economy; it's to politics, and that's a, that's a very special moment where citizenry is more important than quick earnings. I mean, I, w I wouldn't say it this way because I'm pretty sure that next week the battle will be about. Uh, who will pay the price of, of the collapse, right? Because right, when we talk right. about capital control, about exceptional measures of the banks, yes, uh, we want to make sure that the ones paying are not uh, like the majority of the people that have uh, that kept their savings, uh, yeah. right? So we're talking about big capital, uh, people who have uh, big amounts of money and who are trying from today to to transfer their money to banks abroad and, and they're unfortunately allowed to do so because of how the system works in Lebanon. So, the, But this could go either way. It could cause more people to go to the street, it could also scare people away. So in other words, it's not really clear how the economy will either impact or it'll either increase the momentum or perhaps frighten people. It's just too early to tell. I mean, I agree. There, there's a lot of unknown variables, so yeah. it's, it's pretty hard to predict. Uh -huh. But when it comes to the people's uh, uh, kind of sentiment or attitude towards the establishment and also their eagerness to get rid of this establishment, I don't think that uh, an economic collapse will make them, like, uh, like divert them from this, from this goal. Right. Uh, it might affect their ability to mobilize on the ground and it might shift their priority for a short period of time because they will be uh, kind of seeking... Uh, more urgent uh, things in their life, yeah. but when it comes to their political attitudes and their eagerness to to seek change, I don't think that's that's something that's going to impact them. And you touched on something earlier, which is that this is leaderless up to a point, right? Yeah. I mean, there are people involved, of course, and sometimes they're not necessarily the most visible, but there are groupings, there are there are actors on the street that we see, and they're very smartly not putting their face in the front of the movement or mm -hmm. not trying. A few people did kind of flirt with it and they, they kind of fizzled away. Yeah. So in a way they're being filtered out. But I want to take us back to almost 15 years ago, which is February, March 2005. Yeah. Uh, a man I deeply admire and your uncle, Samir Asir. He wasn't a leader per se, but he was a voice and he was a serious voice, an eloquent voice. A journalist that became, in a sense, a politician, a historian, a man with a lot of decency and dignity and foresight. I remember being persuaded to keep going back to the street because of him. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the quote that he left us with: Now that quote meant something. I mean, it still means something today, obviously, but it meant something then, because that was the first time yeah. since the end of the Civil War that people had a rallying call. Yeah. And then, of course, we have Gibran Twaini mm -hmm. doing something similar, that this ode to Lebanon that he 
gave us and we still use in Martyr's Square, there were names that we could turn to. There were also politicians that got involved, and maybe they got too involved. But these two names I associate with a lot of, uh, a lot of purpose to keep going and trying. Yeah. And I want to ask you, now that we're seeing this younger generation without the leadership, do you think that people like those people, whether they're journalists, they could be like you, or they could be uh, just people with a voice, academic background that need to express their thoughts and, and unify people, do you think that we'll need these voices at some point to help steer this to a political cause? I mean, I would say that these voices exist. It's just that they're not maybe as visible and as prominent as uh, as, as they used to be in 2005. Uh, we have many leaders, we have many faces, uh, and there are a lot of people. Uh, it's just that we have maybe redefined the concept of, of a leader and, and the archetype of, of, of who can be a leader. Uh, and I'm not trying to romanticize the fact that it's leaders or it's organic, and I am convinced that we need political institutions and we need to mobilize within the frameworks of syndicates and parties and unions and we need spokespeople and we need charismatic people that are able to come in to, uh, to, to, to sustain momentum and so on and so forth. It's just that in the early days, what made it also so impactful was that it was subversive, it didn't have a face, it didn't have a kind of a political party. Uh, the establishment was totally surprised by how things were uh, yeah. were unfolding. Yeah. They couldn't expect what was the next move. Yeah. And this is what caused the panic, in my opinion, among the establishment. And that also allowed us to get our first victory, which is the resignation of the government. So maybe we could separate. In this phase, it was definitely the right tactic and the right approach mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not to steer things in a kind of a classical way with very clear political institutions yeah. that are getting together in a coalition and that issuing statements and trying to steer things. Uh, but beyond this tactical point, I think that yeah, today to sustain this, it is undeniable that we will need to organize and it has already started. Yeah. Uh, you have alternative syndicates that are organizing amongst journalists and uh, uh, university professors and also other fields, uh, which is uh, one of the few organizations that are emerged from this revolution. What is the evolution from there? Is it simply a new political party? No, it's not a party. It's just people who are trying to mobilize around interest-based and class-based yeah. issues and just getting organized to be able to sustain their action on the street and to be able to strategize and to be able to plan next mm -hmm. steps. Mm -hmm. And it's undeniable that from these collectives, there will be leaders that will emerge. But again, it's very important to, to remember that I think that this generation has also redefined a bit what leadership means. That's an interesting point. I've never heard anyone express it this way. So the leadership in itself has changed. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, and I would say also the leadership in its kind of patriarchal also <laughs> and, and much away uh, is something that is not necessarily accepted today by a big chunk of yeah. the population. And, it's and un unthinkable to go to Nahar now and just like it's crazy, right? The national anthem with that giant yeah. woman in the middle in red. Yeah. So that's special. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the role of women. Besides the role of the ground, there is there's also a big role uh, politically. Uh, it's basically to impose uh, uh, issues that have to do with women's rights in the yeah. forefront of politics yeah. and refusing that these are marginal or these come as a second priority, as a lesser priority. 
what feminists have, have, have achieved in this revolution is, is totally unprecedented uh, and, 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 and something completely admirable. Yeah. And also the values that come with this uh, feminist movement have to do with the way we approach leadership and who has monopoly over speech and who has monopoly over the mic and, uh, and over media appearance. So to answer your question shortly, yes, we will definitely need people, we need inspirational figures, yeah. but the way these people will, will, will emerge, in my opinion, will be much more grassroots, they'll be much more rooted in collectives that are getting together, mm-hmm. and they will be much more plural and diverse. More like a symbolic form of leadership is now more critical than names. I mean, in other words, like women's rights is now a type of leadership. In a, in a sense, but also names and also people who have uh, credibility and who, who have credentials. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we need we need a bit of everything. We need yeah. to maintain this extremely organic and subversive and spontaneous uh, form of action, but we also need to organize into collectives. That's interesting. Subversive yeah. and spontaneous. Yeah. And that, I think, is what didn't happen before. That you didn't have those two components together at the same time. Before, you mean in, in 2015? Well, more like 2005. Mm. And it was a sort of a 15-year build-up to a an incident that led people to the streets. Uh, and t- 2015 was really the same thing. It's 25 years of trash and corruption yeah. and, and horrible governance. But subversive, which is, I think, mm-hmm. somewhat new, I don't remember seeing that before. This, this creative way of... Yeah. I mean, this this type of... This type of revolt yeah. is so unusual, and you have kids chanting curse words, and it becomes almost like the national anthem. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that's the, point, I mean, you're literally insulting <laughs> the foreign minister, yeah. and he, he made him into a complete joke overnight. Yeah, that was unthinkable before. I mean, um, I can I can compare with 2005 because I didn't live the experience, so everything yeah. I know about it is from stuff that I read. But maybe something that could be interesting would be to see in 2005 political parties that have been entrenched in Lebanese politics for years were also central to what happened. Of yeah, course, there yeah. was a spontaneous component and, and you had a very big citizen kind of non-sectarian movement within uh, the independence and the father. Yeah. But you also had political parties that were really trying to steer things in a very strict way. In 2015, we didn't have political parties, but we as collectives also uh, I think made a mistake in trying to organize too much things on the ground uh-huh. and to be too much obsessed with this coalition and right. these endless meetings that that, that that just take ages and don't get any results <laughs> you, on the ground. You said it. I mean, these are... Yeah. <laughs> and then today we've seen that like people have completely took control over yeah. the pace of things yeah. and uh, it's just about us trying to support and to help as much as we can in the backstage yeah. sustain this and not put ourselves in any way in, 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 in the front. And this is what allows for creativity and right, subversion. Right. Because yeah. nobody's telling anybody, don't do that or do this. Yeah. People feel completely uh, owning the moment and being able to uh, self-express the way they see fit. And in just in the short term, do you see this m- movement better suited for municipal elections? Or do you see something like this needing to enter the political framework straight to parliament I think that there is definitely an opportunity to to go straight to parliament straight to parliament yeah okay because we've also redefined what politics means yeah. politics is not only about uh, sorting garbage but there's no the strategic air. value to going to an entity that is not necessarily fully controlled by the old political guard mm, I mean my, uh, and I, I don't mean it in terms of not going to parliament but I mean that 
because that is a level that is really, I think, underappreciated. Yeah. That maybe a buffer could be created from that end. That yeah. I mean, uh, I was part of Beirut Majeti, so I'm completely convinced in the importance of working at the local level yes. and redefining politics from a local level and also yeah. how much... Uh, I mean, basically, local politics is much more direct form of democracy, and people have much more impact in the decisions and much more involved. And but at the same and time, it I think naturally links to what people want on the streets as well. <laughs> Absolutely, which is simply good governance. Yeah. But also making the jump and, and entering politics uh, at the national level is also something that is unavoidable. Uh-huh. Uh, the criticism that I could make, which is the one that I made personally in 2018. I wasn't convinced with the alternative that was uh, that was presented basically by the so-called civil society because the approach to legislative election was in a sense the same that they had or that we had to a municipal election in the sense that mm-hmm. we're not tackling the divisive issues, we're not tackling the issue of Hezbollah's weapons, we're not having a very clear stance on economic issues, uh, we're not really, uh, uh, maybe we're shying away from saying uh, we want a secular state, uh, right. upholding refugees' rights. Yani, it was a very toned-down version of, of what we stood for for the past eight years. Right. And for me, this doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. help gather more people. On the contrary, yeah. it yeah. makes you seem weak and unclear and not really having a, a very clear and strong project. So I think that the, yeah, yeah. the entry point to national politics is really to have uh, a very clear discourse mm-hmm. and not to avoid any issue that we think uh, is divisive or is... Uh, yeah. But a big, big issue like weapons beyond state control. Yeah. Fact that we still have a giant state within the state. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think this movement will address head on? Or do you think, because we both know that other people have tried to address that concern, they've either been exiled yeah. or, or eliminated? Of course. So do you think that within this movement, that huge issue that has been largely left out of the discussion, yeah. largely? Do you think that can be addressed as well? I think there is no taboo in 2019. Mm-hmm. Everything can be addressed, uh, including Hezbollah and including. I like, uh, I like that optimism. Yeah. I mean, it's it's more than optimism. I mean, it's we're seeing it. We're seeing it happen, oh. right? Like people. I like that clarity. Yeah. <laughs> I, maybe I'm too old. Uh, what, what what I could say about Hezbollah is yeah. that definitely the approach uh, that is coming from a sectarian mentality mm. is completely useless, and this is not something that can hinder Hezbollah in any way. Criticizing Hezbollah from a national and from a civic and from a secular perspective is, in my opinion, what really Hezbollah is scared of. And we could give many examples about uh, the relationship between Hezbollah and a leftist national alternative. I mean, I think you got my point, from 82 till 2005. Uh, And again, today, there is no legitimacy, in my opinion, to a movement that wants to criticize Hezbollah and the weapons of Hezbollah without this movement being inherently secular and not coming from a sectarian perspective right. not being a Sunni right. and Christian movement right. against a, a, a Shia majority with, with yeah. weapons yeah. because if this is how things will go we're back to the spiral of, of sectarianism and demography and, uh, yeah. and power dynamics so it's better that the argument is done through the secular framework in order for it to literally gain traction and, and credence that's, that, that's the only way to make it credible first yeah. and that's yeah. also the only way to make it powerful and threatening because yeah. when we're all from all sects and from all regions saying that we're against the entire establishment and we want the Lebanese state to protect us, including from Israel and first and foremost from Israel, and we want this to be clear and set in stone, 
Uh, this is much stronger than having a bunch of sectarian parties who've dealt with the civil war, who have a long past, and who have a very narrow sectarian consideration, yeah. criticize Hezbollah from this standpoint. Right. Aside from images of Tripoli and Nabati and the whole country in unison, which I think a lot of people will remember years from now, personally, I was very happy when I saw Martyrs Square come to life. Yeah. And I'm going to be very personal here, where the, the tombs next to Hadiris, my father's buried there. I was so happy to see people there. I've been going there for so long and it's been deserted. Mm -hmm. Usually, I'm the only person there. Looking around, there's just no one but me. Cold silence. It almost feels like a loss that, that just it's over. This was a failed attempt at fixing the country. The last few weeks, people using that space, people joyous, people uh, holding the flag with pride. Yeah. I end the tour at Samir Asir Garden and I like to bring him to life whenever <laughs> I can. And I wanted to ask you, do you think Samir Asir would be happy with the way we're conducting ourselves today? Is he smiling from above? Knowing that not just his relatives, but his friends and his comrades, mm -hmm. whether it's Ziad Mejid who made an occasion by coming back, or Absolutely. do you think that they are proud of what we're doing? I mean, when, when I see Elias uh, Khoura and Ziad Mejid and their optimism and also uh, what Elias uh, wrote about Samir, yeah. I think this, that's, that's, that's the answer. And my relationship with my uncle is uh, that of a nephew and, and, and an uncle. I, of course, look up to him uh, as, uh, as, uh, as a figure and as a model, but I've discovered him politically, unfortunately, in like his last uh, few, few, few days and after, uh, after his assassination. Yeah. And this is when I started to discover his, his real role. Before that, he was, uh, Just he was my uncle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were pretty close uh, and uh, yeah. So, but of course, I mean, for me, what Samir stood for in 2005 is something that we are doing today and we are uh, like repeating it. Yeah, and uh, so we are literally using that quote to our advantage. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I don't want to, to speculate, but I'm pretty sure that he wasn't very happy with how the independence intifada uh, ended and, yeah. uh, and and how events basically followed. And there's yeah. an article that talks about that, which is the intifada, the intifada. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so in my opinion, I mean, what we're doing is is completing the. Kind of the Bayan al-Halim, in a sense, yeah. which is to see, finally, a free, democratic, secular state that has social justice where people are enjoying their rights. And that's definitely a, a legacy that, that, that we're continuing today. On that note, mm -hmm. it's a privilege to meet you. I know it's the first time we meet. I'm glad we. I'm glad this is our first conversation. Yeah. We can talk about more mundane things the next time we see each Absolutely. other. So thank you. Thank you. as the uprising continues. To stay updated, simply subscribe to your preferred podcast platform or find us on our YouTube channel and kindly consider a contribution through Patreon. There's a link in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan.